So this is the final part um, of this series, which makes it the end of the series as we know it, right? Last part, sorry, I couldn't resist. Um, we, we have talked about a lot of stuff, but there's a lot that we haven't talked about when it comes to the end of the world, right? Like one of my temptations whenever I put together a series is try to cover everything. And in order to do that, series are going to be 20, 25 weeks. And nobody wants that, me included. Um, so there are certain things that we, that we can't get to. So I just want you to know that I know there are some things that we have not even touched on when it comes to the end of the world, right? Like some of you want us to, uh, to talk about, you know, the Antichrist or the rapture or dive deeper into Revelation. I get all of that. But if nothing else, I hope I've at least primed the pump for you to dive into some of those things. Like, you don't have to come to church to learn about God. You don't have to come to this place to learn about some of those things. You can dive into them on your own, and I would encourage you to. You certainly don't need my permission. But if, if there are ways that, um, you know, if there are sources, if there are voices that you would like to know, like, who should we listen to here? Who should we trust? We can certainly, certainly help you with that. But I just want you to know, we could talk about this until the end of the world and still not cover it all. Okay, so I, I, I get that. So today's the last part. Haven't covered everything, but we have tried to cover kind of some of the big rocks. Okay, first week was the sin problem. Uh, second week, we talked about what does Jesus have to say about the end of the world? That's pretty important. We should figure out what Jesus has to say about the end of the world. Then last week, we, we dealt with the big rock of pain and suffering and, and what's going to happen in the end to, to evil. Um, and today, I want to take um, another step kind of in that direction, but make it a little bit more personal. Um, and, and we're going to lo look at this, this question. Okay, if pain and suffering is a reality for us, how do we survive? How do we survive in a world full of pain, in a world full of chaos and, and, and suffering? Not just, the, not just the big, you know, worldwide, everybody has to deal with this kind of pain but the stuff you deal with personally, the weight that you carry for whatever reason, stuff that's happened to you, stuff that's happened around you, um, you know, things, things that just kind of accumulate over life. How do, we, how do you survive in a world where pretty much everybody deals with that? Because come on, let's, let's just be honest. You've seen people who haven't survived it. Their faith hasn't survived it. Relationships haven't survived. You know, integrity, their integrity hasn't survived. Some of you, you know people who their literal physical life hasn't survived because the pain and suffering was too much. So how do, how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you survive that? And, and maybe to take it another step further than that, how do, you, how do you, maybe it's not just about surviving, how do you thrive? Can you thrive? In a world full of pain and, 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 and suffering, I mean, are we, just, are we just destined to live with like our nose just barely above the water? Are we all Sisyphus who are just constantly pushing the boulder up the mountain? I mean, is that our lot in life? Or is there more? Does, does Jesus call us to more than that? 
That's what I want us to talk about today. How do we, how do we survive? And, and the way I want to do that, um, this might seem kind of academic to some of you, but if you'll stick with me through the next 30 minutes of pain and suffering, I promise there's a payoff in the end, okay? Um, the way I want to do this is I want to look at um, two thoughts about pain and suffering, four terrible coping strategies for pain and suffering, and then two thoughts that kind of underlie all of that, okay? Two, four, two. So some of you will know how quick we're going through the message whenever you see two, four, two, right? Two thoughts about pain and suffering, four terrible coping strategies, and then two thoughts that kind of underlie it all, okay? Here we go. Two thoughts about pain and suffering. Number one, there is more you can do about suffering than you think. There's more you can do about suffering than you think. And number two, there's less you can do about suffering than you think. Okay? Perfectly logical conclusion. Let me tell you how. Okay? Um, two things. The, the two things about pain and suffering. Um, when you think about your life, the struggles you personally face, maybe it's relationships that are broken that you want to be repaired, uh, the challenges you face in your work environment, uh, maybe even the emotions that you have when you suffer or the emotions you have when people that you love suffer. There's actually more you can do about that than you think. And then secondly, at the same time, there's less than you can do about that than you think. Um, you know, there's, there's a hurricane barreling towards the Gulf right now. And some of you are going to get on the phone this week and you call the Red Cross, you're going to call some relief agency, and you're going to donate some money to alleviate some of that suffering. We should do that. That's good. The problem is that's not going to keep suffering from happening again. So there's actually less that you can do about suffering than you think. And, and because of that dichotomy, because it almost, feels, it almost feels helpless sometimes, because of that dichotomy, people will often use terrible coping strategies when it comes to the issue of pain and suffering. Maybe you've heard people say these things or do these things. Maybe you've said them. Maybe you've done them um, in the past. But they're, they're, they're just they're terrible strategies people use to cope with suffering. So here's, here's the four things. Number one, um, they, they think or say, nothing bad will ever happen to me. Nothing bad will ever happen. And again, maybe they say that. Maybe they say that in a different way. Maybe they think that. Um, these, these are the people who don't let you say the word cancer in their house. They don't let you say the word dementia around them. Because if you say it, that will give it power. That's not faith, by the way. That's superstition. But it's the cousin. <laughs> it's the cousin of denial right? Nothing bad will ever happen to me. And, and to be fair, like I want to be fair here. Part of the reason we feel that and part of the reason people go in that direction is because there's echoes of the Garden of Eden baked into you. There's, there, there, there was a time where those kinds of things weren't in existence. So the, 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 the thought, nothing bad will ever happen to me, it's, it's, it's part of your DNA to think that shouldn't be true. That shouldn't be happening. That's because of the garden. That's because of this perfect place where there was no pain and suffering. And I would also say, it points you to a world in front of us. Because you want a world where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, where you don't personally suffer and where people around you don't personally suffer. So I, I've, I've labeled this a terrible strategy because common sense says suffering is inevitable. 
in you, um, around you, within you. Nobody gets out of this unscathed. And that's not a Christian thing. That's just a human thing. Because atheists suffer. Agnostics suffer. Hindus suffer. Muslims, you know, come up with your own religion. You'll still suffer. So it doesn't matter what you believe about God or, or evil or eternity, whatever it is, suffering is going to happen. So this is, it's a terrible strategy to say nothing bad will ever happen. Second thing, second terrible strategy to, to say rules don't apply to me. Rules don't apply to me. And of course, they never apply to you until they do. Like, I, 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 you're not going to get caught speeding. You can go as fast as you want. This is a free country. Or, or how about this one? The speed limit's for bad drivers, Tim. Right? <laughs> speed limit's for bad. Those rules are for bad drivers. And, and, and the rules don't apply to you until you see the lights flashing in your rearview mirror. And all of a sudden, they apply to you. Or how about this one? I can eat whatever I want. I'm, I got good genes. I'm young. Yeah, you might be now, but just wait a couple years. I'm young, you know, I'm not overweight, I don't need to exercise, I won't get sick, because the rules don't apply to me. I'm the exception until they do apply to you. Third one, I can control my life well enough to avoid pain. I can control my life well enough to avoid, this is a thoroughly American idea. Out of all the generations in human history, we live with the greatest illusion of control when it comes to our own lives. I mean, come on, come on. How would that sound to little girls in Afghanistan right now? How would that sound to the people of Haiti right now? Well, I can control my life well enough to avoid pain. No, you can't. No, you can't. It's, it's the illusion of control. Now, are there, on certain levels in certain areas, are there prevention strategies? Yes. Eat well, Exercise regularly, don't smoke, wear a seatbelt, keep the, you know, the skydiving to a minimum, and you'll probably be all right, right? So, so in, some, in some senses, there's prevention strategies, but nobody's bulletproof. Nobody can control their life to the point where they never, never have to face pain. And then the fourth one, it sounds really spiritual, but it's anything but, I'll obey God and be exempt. I'll obey God and be exempt. Here's how this one sounds. <clears throat> okay, God. I'm going to get my life cleaned up. I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to start praying again. I'm going to start reading the Bible every day. I'll even put a $20 bill in the offering every single week. And then you fix that thing in my life. And then you fix my marriage. And then you bless me financially. There's this, this work reward idea. I work. God rewards me. Tim Keller talks about this, or he talked about this when he was still pastoring all the time. He says, that's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's religion. Because religion says, I obey God so that he will love me. Christianity says, no, God loves me, so I will obey. And in the same way, religion says, I obey God, and he'll keep me from suffering. The gospel flips it upside down and says, actually, God suffered for you. So, not that so, not that so you'll, you'll never have suffering in this world, but so that you can escape suffering for an eternity. It's the opposite. It's different. It's completely different than religion. So two, four, two. 
Two thoughts about pain and suffering, four terrible strategies, and then we have two underlying thoughts. And number one, the first thought, we tend to focus on things we can't control. That's why the news bothers some of you so much. I can't believe our government's doing that. Can't believe her. Can't believe my ex. Can't believe all this stuff about masks and vaccines. I can't believe my boss. You focus on what we can't control and ignore the things we can. We focus on what we can't control and ignore the things we can't because the problem isn't me, the problem's them. The problem isn't me, the problem's her. The problem isn't me, the problem is my ex. The problem isn't me, the problem is all those people who disagree with me about masks and vaccines. The problem isn't me, the problem is Pastor Tim keeps talking about that. The problem's not me, the problem's outside of me. We amplify what's wrong with others and minimize what's wrong with us. And if, if you want to survive, we're going to talk about this more in a minute, but if you want to survive, if you want to thrive in a world full of chaos and pain, you actually have to reverse that thinking. And, and some of you, this is going to free you up if you'll hear it today. Because I'm trying to get you to ask the question, okay, why do I resist the things I can control? Why do, I, why do we ignore those things? You can control your response to what's happening around you. You can control your behavior. You, you, you can't control what people say to you, but you can control what you say to them. You can't control your family. You can't control the weather. You can't control the government. You can't control the economy. But you can control how you spend, how you vote, how you pray, and whether or not you take an umbrella with you in the morning. You can control those things. And what might happen? happen if you stop focusing on the things you can't control? And start to focus on the things you can, like, okay, how much of this conflict is my problem? How, how big of the piece of the pie and, and, am I the problem at work? Like, where do I need to change my attitude? How, how, how do I need to adjust the way I respond to suffering? When you start to focus on the piece of the pie, that's your responsibility it actually gives God permission to speak into your life through his word, through his people, through his spirit, through nature, through reason. There's so many ways that God wants to speak into your life. But sometimes you've got to give him permission to do that. And some of you are terrified of that. You're terrified because you've done a great job of tuning people out because you're smarter, you're quicker, you're, you're, you're more well-read, and you've just decided nobody gets to speak into your life. And yeah, I'm here in church, and I want the God thing, and I like the benefits of that, but I'm not really interested in making him the Lord of my life. Not really interested in bowing my knee. If, there, if there's a heaven and hell thing, I definitely want to be on the right side of that. But when it comes to his kingdom and making sure I bow my knee to him as king, I don't want to do that because I want to, then I have to give up complete control. And he'll ask me to start changing stuff. And I'm not really down for that. To, to, to summarize it, you want the things of the kingdom without the king. And you know what happens when there is no king? There is no kingdom. You can't get the kingdom without the king. And, 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 and what's underneath that thought? Here's the second thought that's kind of underneath it all. <laughs> this is going to hurt a little bit. You believe you're doing a better job at running your life than God would. 
you believe you're doing a better job at running your life than God would. And when, when the problem is always them and it's something outside of you, it's never anything is on, nothing's any, never on you. It's the school system, it's the government, it's the economy, it's your family, it's Republicans, it's Democrats, it's always somebody else. At the heart of that, the underlying thought is you're doing a perfectly good job running your life and you don't need God. And do you know why we suffer? Right there. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about all the suffering, because some suffering is inevitable. We have absolutely no control over it. But some of our suffering, maybe a big chunk of our suffering, it's kind of self-inflicted. It's self-inflicted because you or two of you created the relational chaos. You created the financial chaos. You create the, the, the chaos in your integrity. You created the, the, the chaos in your physical body. You created, and if, if I admit I'm not doing a very good job and trust God with that, I'm afraid he'll ask me to change something, so I'm just going to sit here with my bowl of suffering. What? And this is, where, this is where I think Jesus shows up, or at least I want him to show up, and say to you, can I show you something? There's, there's another way. Can I show you a different way? And so we're going to hang out in a couple verses at the end of what we know of um, as the Sermon on the Mount. We really want to dial on, the, on this, okay? Sermon on the Mount is um, the principles of, of the kingdom. Love your enemies. You know, turn the other cheek. Don't worry about tomorrow. There's all this unbelievable teaching and the Sermon on the Mount, all these lofty ideas about the kingdom. And so if you want to know what Jesus' kingdom is about, read the Sermon on the Mount, okay? But towards the end, he says something I just want us to be either reminded of or maybe for the first time hear this. And this is often taught um, in the realm of heaven and hell, but I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think he's actually inviting us, even though we face suffering and pain in this world, it's inevitable. I think he's inviting us to do something about the self-imposed suffering. I think that's what he's doing here. So here's, here's what he says. He says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to what? Life. And a few find it. And again, the, the common interpretation here is following Jesus is hard. That's why many people don't do it right. Or an even worse interpretation is this is why so many people are going to hell. I, I don't think that's what Jesus is driving at here. The verse before, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. So, okay, Tim, is Jesus talking about like eternal destruction or is he just talking about destruction in this life? Yes. <laughs> he is. That, 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 that Greek word there can mean both. It can actually mean both. So, but, but remember, he's dropped all of this teaching on them about his kingdom and what's about. So if you, if you find yourself resisting something about Jesus, something about Jesus' kingdom, you decide, I don't really want to do what Jesus says about forgiveness. It's too hard. I, I really don't want to do what Jesus says about bitterness. I want to do that. I want to do what Jesus says about money or grace or sex or relationships. I don't want to do that. It's just too hard. I don't like it. 
Jesus would say, lots of people do that. And you're free to choose to do that. But I just want you to know, that's a big, broad road. And a lot of people go that direction. I'm just telling you right now, it leads to destruction. But if you want to live life and like zero in on where life is best lived, if you want to reduce the amount of self-inflicted chaos and suffering in your life, can I, can I show you another path? It's smaller. The gate, it's, it's, it's a little more difficult to get in through. But at the end, instead of destruction, at the end, it actually leads to life. It's the better road. It's the harder road. That's why so few people choose it. But it's the better way. It's a far better way. And he teaches a little bit more, and then he comes back to this same idea in verse 24. This is, some of you are going to be familiar with this. Therefore, everyone who hears these, this is at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, everything he's just taught, like three chapters of the most well-known teaching of Jesus, and puts them into practice. Listening to them is great. Reading them is great. Like studying them is great. Showing up at church and having somebody else teach you them, that's all great. But all you ever do is listen to them and you don't put them into practice. It's useless. It's absolutely loose. So love your enemy, okay? That's like really, that's way up there. Yeah, I actually want you to love her. I, can I, we just say like we love the Taliban and just leave it at this big, broad thing? No, I actually want you to love her. I actually want you to love him because he's your enemy. She's your enemy. Hey, don't worry about tomorrow. But Jesus, like, do you know how much uncertainty there is in Tomorrow. Like, do you realize how big of a deal that, yeah, but I actually want you to do this. I want you to live this way. Because here's what happens when you do. <laughs> if you do, you'll be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. He's just describing life. He's describing life. You don't have control over when and how the wind comes and when the storms come and when they don't. You have no control over that. And listen, I know you don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. But let's just go back to last week. Suffering doesn't mean that God is losing. Suffering doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It means you're human. In the case of Jesus, suffering meant doing exactly what the Father wanted him to do. Just look at the cross. That's the model. So those things outside of our control are going to come, but if you're wise, you put Jesus, what Jesus taught into practice, what happens to your life? The streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Notice, it doesn't get rid of the winds and the waves and the storms. It doesn't get rid of them, just withstands them. So you've been taught to forgive, you've been taught to love your enemy, taught how to pray, taught how to exercise self-control, you've learned humility, you've, you've learned not to judge, you've put all of that into practice and the storms in life come and they blow and they beat up against your house. Your life won't collapse. Your life will endure. That's the narrow path, that's the narrow gate, but you're invited. 
to build your house on that rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. You know what a fool is? At least biblically speaking, a fool is someone who knows the truth and says, the rules don't apply to me. That truth isn't going to catch up with me. I can, I can eat whatever I want. I can treat people however I want. I can judge whoever I want. I can do whatever I want. I'm an American. I have the right. Jesus says, you're a fool. You're a fool if you think you can build your life on that kind of thinking and escape the storms of life. It's a fool. It's a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Same storms, same wind, same rain, different result. And Jesus, this is the invitation. Jesus invites you. He invites me to build our life on the principles of his kingdom that he embodied as king. And it doesn't take away the rain, doesn't take away the wind, doesn't take away the storms, but your relationships, your hope, your life will endure if and when you practice forgiveness. You practice grace. You practice taking the plank out of your own eye before you point out the speck in theirs. You practice what Jesus says. That's the, that's the life Jesus has invited you to live. And the question becomes, okay, how do you build that kind of life? It's about building on sand or building on, on solid rock. How do you build that kind of life? And I'll tell you, this isn't the end-all answer because we probably need to do an entire 30-week series on how to answer that question. But I'll tell you this. This is how, this is how I've tried to build that kind of life in, in a nutshell. And you can ask my wife. You can ask my kids. You can ask those people who are closest to me. Sometimes I do this really good. Sometimes I don't. But I think this is it. This is how you build that kind of life. You act on what you can control and you trust God with what you can't. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? Act on what you can control. Trust God with what you can't. And for some reason, I point, that up, I put, point this out because some reason we do the opposite. We do the opposite. We're so worried. We're so consumed with what's happening in Washington, D.C., so worried, we're so consumed with our kids, our spouse, the unknown of the future, the unknown of the virus. We can't control any of that. But I can control my behavior. I can control my response. I can control how I view all of these things. I can control whether or not I'm going to be a destruction for force in this world. And we can control whether or not we build our lives on solid rock or sand. And what might happen? What might happen if you just acted on what you can control and trusted God with what you can't? A few weeks ago, I, uh, I quoted from an author and speaker uh, by the name of Jordan Peterson. He's a very controversial figure. I get that. But I'm going to quote from him again because I think he says something here that may be one of the best summaries of a biblical principle outside of the Bible that I have ever heard. He actually quotes some of the Bible in it, but um, it's, it's from his book, 12 Rules of Life. He's trying to diagnose what's wrong with the world, particularly when it comes to young men 
who can't get their stuff together. But I think it, I think it applies broadly. So just listen to what he has to say, and then we'll wrap this up. He says, pay attention. Fix what you can fix. Don't be arrogant in your knowledge. Strive for humility. Because totalitarian pride manifests itself in intolerance, oppression, torture, and death. Again, 20th century. Just look at the 20th century where atheistic regimes moved God aside and assumed human supremacy over other human beings. 123 million people died. That's what happens in a vacuum of totalitarian pride on the world stage, but it's also what happens in a vacuum of totalitarian pride in a human heart. He goes on, and this is strong language, but just watch where he takes it. Become aware of your own insufficiency, your cowardice, malevolence, resentment, and hatred. Consider the murderousness of your own spirit before you dare accuse others and before you attempt to repair the fabric of the world. Maybe it's not the world that's at fault. Maybe it's you. You've failed to make the mark. You've missed the target. Do you know one of the biblical definitions of sin? Missing the target. And then he just says it. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You've sinned. Now he's just preaching. All of that is your contribution to the insufficiency and evil of the world. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Right? Like, okay. What would happen? What would happen if you decided to act on your contribution to the insufficiency and evil in the world? Like, what would happen? Can you, can you think about what might happen in your relationships, in your family, in, in all of your spheres of influence? Can you imagine how that would trickle down into a community? Can you imagine what might happen if that trickled into a state and then into a country and then into the world? But what happened? If you acted on what you can control and trusted God with what you can't, because I can control my willingness to seek forgiveness. I can't control whether or not they choose to forgive me. I can control pursuing justice in my community, but I cannot control how far and wide that justice finds itself. I can control how hard and honestly I work, but I can't control how and what happens with my company, with my business, with my job. I can control how I live and vote as a citizen of the United States, but I can't control what my government does or doesn't do. So there's actually more about suffering that you can do than you think. And in the thing that you can't control and the things that you can't control, there's actually a whole lot of room for your trust in God to grow. What an opportunity. (laughs) What an opportunity for our trust in God to grow. So we're going to close. You've already heard by taking communion. If you want to get that ready right now, you might as well get it ready. Take off the top lid, get get the bread out. Open the lid for the juice. We'll, we'll get to that here in a second. Feel free to get that ready if you want. And here's, here's what I want to say while we're doing this. Do you, do you know, I haven't, don't teach a whole lot about this, but do you know who communion is for? It's for the broken. It's for the weary. It's, it's for the imperfect. It's for the sinner 
who realizes their need for a savior. It's, it's for people who have realized that they want the benefits of the kingdom, so they've bowed their knee to the king. It's, it's for those who, well, we're going to sing this here in a minute. It's for those who've decided to join him in his suffering so that we'll join him when he rises. It's for those who have decided whatever happens, let pain come. Let suffering come. Bring it on. Christ be magnified in me. That's who communion is for. So you don't have to be a member of our church to take communion, but we do ask that you've at least bowed your knee to the king. And maybe, maybe you want to make that decision before you take communion today. At the same time, I realize, based on some of the feedback that I've gotten, this series has stirred some stuff up in some of you. On top of that, I know the events of our world is stirring stuff up in a lot of people. We're carrying a lot of weight on top of normal life. Seems like the wind, the rain, the storms are pretty consistent these days. So we've intentionally set aside just some time for us to pray here at the end. To pray, to reflect, to celebrate communion together. We're going to pray silently for a few moments. I'll close that time of prayer by praying for us and then we'll sing to wrap up the service. And you take communion anytime that you want in these last few minutes together. We're not going to all take it together. You just take it whenever, whenever you're ready to. But maybe, I don't know, maybe you need to make that transition of trust from whatever you're trusting in to trusting in Jesus, the best decision you'll ever make. Might be one of the hardest things you've ever done because life doesn't necessarily get better just because you start following Jesus. In some, in some instances, it becomes harder because narrow is the gate. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Maybe you want to spend some time in prayer for Afghanistan, for Haiti, for the Gulf Coast, for people that you know personally that are suffering. Maybe you need to spend some time in reflection on your own personal suffering and what, what part of this is, is my doing? And spend some time in confession and repentance because I haven't trusted you, God. I've trusted myself. Whatever that looks like. We're just going to spend a few moments doing that here as we close out our time together. So let's, let's just do that. Father, we've, we've sung of your goodness. We've seen what you ask of us, not so that we 
get your love, but because of your love, you've invited us to choose the better way. And Father, the better way is, is, is not only found in, but it's established in the cross. It's the way of suffering. It's the way of pain. We all face it. But in some senses, we get to choose. <laughs> we get to choose what kind of pain we experience in life, the pain of regret or the pain of discipline. Father, would you help us to be the kind of people that don't try to escape pain, that don't try to escape suffering, but we actually use it, we actually leverage it for your good, for your glory in our lives. That we can actually choose the harder way. We can choose to walk on the, the, the narrow path because it leads to life. Just as your death and resurrection led to life. So Father, as we take the bread, as we drink the juice, would you remind us of this? But suffering doesn't mean the absence of God. Suffering doesn't mean you're losing. It actually means you're winning. And God, as the, the bread and the juice enters our body, would you remind us that your spirit embodies us? The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in us. And you send us out to be agents of hope, to be agents of, of reconciliation, to be agents that people, men and women, that bring relief and comfort to those who suffer because we've received relief and comfort from you. Jesus, be magnified in our lives. I ask this, I pray this in Jesus' name.